Thank you, Tyler. Well, I am really excited about uh, the series that we are entering into in terms of the kingdom of God, talking about kingdom culture from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a series that is both intimidating in some ways, but, but mainly just exciting to explore the different aspects of God's kingdom as we see articulated uh, through the eyes of Matthew, somebody who was so radically transformed by the gospel. And so we want to take time to kind of pause and uh, take the next number of months to explore what Matthew says about this kingdom culture. Uh, we want to go slow at times. We might uh, even circle back. But we also want to live into this kingdom culture that Jesus invites us into. And as I mentioned, Matthew, uh, who was the author of this gospel, was a tax collector. And, and so for Matthew, it was really personal. He was somebody who was completely transformed by Jesus and completely transformed by this kingdom that he encountered in so many different ways, and it just changed him forever. He was a tax collector who was immersed in a culture of power and commerce and corruption, uh, not so different from the worst elements of those very things that we see on the news each and every day. And yet when he encountered it and when he encountered Jesus, it, it changed him so completely. It changed how he viewed himself, it changed how he viewed the world, and it changed how he handled all even these gifts that God had given him. And so I pray that we might see and experience this kingdom culture in a very similar way. Not just to understand it maybe more deeply or to just reflect on it, but actually to live into it, to experience it. The way that Jesus modeled for us uh, this kingdom that he ushered in, that he pointed to, and that he declared, and that he also uh, invited us to follow him in. And so um, Matthew is giving a testimony. He's giving a testimony to something remarkable. Not only something remarkable, he's giving a testimony to someone remarkable because he's continually pointing to Jesus. And he's saying that the king is here, the kingdom is now, and Jesus is the king. And so even as was mentioned, this Christ candle that we have in this service is this reminder, this subtle reminder that the kingdom is always breaking in and it's a kingdom of light. That on the one hand, it, it seems weak and sort of not that powerful, but it is a different kind of power that cannot be snuffed out. And so that is the kingdom that we celebrate. That is the kingdom that we want to explore and, and to walk and know this kingdom culture that Jesus has encouraged us into. So I would encourage you throughout this uh, series to get a notebook or maybe a, a new journal or maybe just create some space on your phone, however you take notes, and take time to write things down, reflect. Uh, even today, as Chandra mentioned, we have some questions for you to think about, reflect, and at times discuss with other people. Uh, one of the great things about online services is that we can actually re reach out to people anywhere in the world. But one of the worst things about online services is that we become uh, spectators of something as opposed to engaged worshipers. And so we want to be people who are engaged in this in very active ways. And so my prayer and encouragement for each one of us is, is don't allow this series to be a spectator sport, but allow the Word of God through the Spirit of God to just seep into your lives and allow it to change how you live, not just how you think. That we would experience some of this transformation that we see the evidence of throughout these texts that we'll be exploring. And so we'll see that today in Jesus' baptism and also in his temptation, that Jesus modeled a number of things that are part of this kingdom culture. He modeled humility and obedience. He modeled the power of the Holy Spirit. He modeled the fact that, that the Word of God has truth and impact. And so we'll see that today, and these are part of kingdom culture 
pieces. And so what's interesting also is that we'll see right from the genealogy of Jesus, from his, his birth that we see, the genealogy in chapter 1 to his birth in Matthew chapter 2 that we've been looking at in the weeks prior, to John the Baptist in chapter 3 that Don looked at last week, and throughout this whole gospel that Matthew is showing that God kept his promises to the people of Israel. And in so many ways, it's like he's pointing out all kinds of things of how it is a fulfillment of these promises to the people of Israel through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so he relives the story of Israel in, in so many ways. And sometimes it's subtle, but sometimes it's really obvious in terms of the connections that are there. And so even today, as we see Jesus going down into the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, it's like the people of Israel crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. As we think about Jesus' time and being tempted in the desert, it reflects the, t- the desert time that the people of Israel had for so many years. As Jesus gathers his 12 disciples, it's like the 12 tribes of Israel and the purposes that God had for them. As Jesus ascends this very different mountain on a cross and inaugurates this new covenant, it's like uh, giving completion and perfection of that mountain that Moses went up with the first covenant. And even in the way that the book of Matthew is arranged and there's like five segments of significant teaching through the book of Matthew, it in many ways, it parallels the five books of the Torah that, that Moses wrote. And so there's so many ways that Matthew seems to be pointing out how Jesus is the king and the kingdom is here. And the fulfillment of all things that was promised to the people of Israel is now culminating in this person of Jesus Christ. So we know that John the Baptist was the forerunner. We heard about that last week. He was declaring this kingdom and he was Declaring that entrance into this kingdom came from repentance, recognizing our sin, recognizing our need for forgiveness. And so he calls people to that, and he calls people to that kind of baptism as well. And then here comes Jesus into this story, and, and Jesus is different. He, he's somebody without sin, and yet he chooses to be baptized all the same. You see, Jesus didn't really need John's baptism of repentance In fact, it was really the other way around. John needed what only Jesus could give, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And yet Jesus chooses to walk in obedience into the waters of baptism. So let's read in Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 17, that last part of Matthew 3 that talks about his baptism. It says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. He says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus says, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. And other translations talk about uh, to fulfill all righteousness. And so John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And with a voice from heaven, he said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. See, John didn't really feel worthy to baptize Jesus. He says, you know what, this is backwards. This doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus insisted. And in many ways, it's another example of Jesus' willingness to enter into our human experience and invite us to follow him. And so we see that the kingdom culture is marked with humility. Even from the text that Tyler just read from Philippians 2 where Paul articulates the incredible humility of Christ, even though he was God, how he chose to take on human flesh. And so Jesus' story is one example after another that is marked 
with humility from his humble birth in a manger to this story that we see today of him walking into the waters of baptism and the obedience of that to him washing his disciples' feet to ultimately dying on a cross for us. The story of Jesus begins and ends with humility and all the way through. And it shows a very different kind of power that this kingdom is all about. Leon Morris says this about Jesus' baptism, and he says, Jesus might well have been up there in front standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinner, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. So we see that humility and obedience mark Jesus' life and also the kingdom culture that he invites us to follow in. Another aspect of this kingdom is the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in this text how the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in verse 16. And and I, I wonder what all that meant. And I think we can only begin to understand that. It's not like Jesus didn't have the Spirit. He is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit was there with him, but in a unique way, maybe for our benefit, to see this Spirit descend on Jesus. It's like the inauguration ceremony of his earthly ministry. And so the Spirit descends. And so his public ministry begins as the anointed Messiah, the beloved Son, and the humble and suffering servant. And Jesus models a way to live fully human, filled with the power of the Spirit, giving us an example of how to live actually a Spirit-filled life, an empowered life, that we see even more clearly in the next part of the text in his temptation that we'll get to in a minute. And then uh, God's favor is expressed upon him. It says, my son, this is my son who brings me great joy. And just as the prophet Isaiah had spoken so many years earlier, another prophecy of Israel here is fulfilled in Jesus. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And you know, each one of you too needs to also hear these words of delight of God the Father. Because you see, this is also part of kingdom culture. Just as God the Father said to Jesus in these moments, God speaks these over you as well. He did this for the people of Israel. If you look at Zephaniah 3 where he says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. There's a similar declaration for you as well. In 1 John 3, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so part of kingdom culture that you need to hear today is that God delights in you. As we simply recognize and confess and repent of our sins, we experience this overflow of grace and mercy that is part of the kingdom of God. And how he delights in you. And this, these waves of forgiveness and repentance and, and mercy and grace, they're, they're symbolized in the waters of baptism. So again, going to that reflection question, maybe this is that time when you just take a few notes in your journal. What's the significance of your baptism for you? As you think of stepping into the waters. And again, if you haven't been baptized yet, why not? What is it that's holding you back from following Jesus in baptism. He, even though God took on this human flesh and walked into the waters and modeled this for us and inviting us to follow in the same way. 
So we have opportunities for you coming even in the next month for you to participate in this aspect of kingdom culture. And then we see as we turn to chapter 4 that right after the baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus and then uh, chapter 4 begins with this strange line and it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you read that and you kind of go, huh? Like, what is going on there? That doesn't seem to make sense. That just seems to be wrong on so many, so many levels. And maybe this is why Jesus included in the Lord's Prayer that we see a little bit further on in Matthew, that line of, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm not sure. But there's this close connection, oftentimes, between baptism and temptation, between our baptism and actually going through times of doubt and difficulty and hardship. And I know as I talk to people after their baptism, they've often reflected a very similar thing. And so how baptism and that public declaration of faithfulness to God and choosing to follow Jesus leads to a time of difficulty where maybe God seems absent. And, And here what's interesting is we see that modeled again in Jesus as he goes before us. So let's read Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. And during that time the devil came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you're the Son of God, then... Jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, and he said, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. It's an interesting question. Why was it that Jesus goes into the desert to face temptation as his first stop in his new ministry? You know, why not Jerusalem? Why not the place that is kind of the center of everything Israel, everything about the Jews? It would have been the more appropriate place where the king of this new kingdom comes and and goes to Jerusalem to kind of begin his earthly ministry. And yet, this is the place that Jesus goes. And and yes, it is the place of the first showdown between these competing kingdoms and their rulers. But it's almost like Jesus needed to go back before he could go forward. You know, the people of Israel, as we've talked about, they repeatedly found themselves in exile. They repeatedly, repeatedly found themselves kind of lost in the wilderness. And Jesus is 40 days reflecting, in many ways, their 40 years. And, and here's the thing for us, just like for Jesus, that it's in the wilderness that our faith and our faithfulness is tested. Will we come out of, the, out of the desert tested but faithful, or will we fall into the wilderness of temptation and sin? And so what's important to notice is that Jesus is spirit-led, and he's engaging the enemy, Satan, as a human filled with the Holy Spirit. Modeling part of the kingdom culture that we are to follow. And you know, Scripture makes it clear that God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil, as it says in James 1. 
but that God often uses circumstances to test and develop a person's character. And so you see, temptation and testing are the flip side of the same coin. Temptation must never be, or must be seen in the context of testing because God is in control of both the tempter and the circumstances. And he'll never allow a person to be tempted beyond what he or she is able to bear. So it starts with 40 days and nights of fasting, and Jesus is weak and hungry, and then the devil comes and tests them with these three very distinct tests or temptations. So the first one is about basic sustenance. You know, the devil says, you know, you're hungry, well, like, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? He knows that Jesus can do that. And Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's almost like Jesus is bringing the past, the present, and the future all together as he makes these words and declares these things. It's like reminding him of the manna that God gave the people of Israel back in the desert when they needed that food for sustenance. We look forward to the ministry of Jesus and we see how Jesus multiplies the loaves and he feeds the 5,000. How Jesus points to himself as the bread of life. So Jesus is the one who fulfills all this. And it's important to see how Jesus quotes a promise of God in the desert. He does that here in the first temptation. He does that in each one of the subsequent temptations as well. And it's an important reminder for us. It's an important pattern for us to see when we are in our times of desert, when we are in our times of struggle, that we proclaim the words of God and the truths of God just as Jesus did. Because you see, when you're in the wilderness, believing the promises of God, even, even when it's contrary to all of the things that appear in front of us, that's what brings life. Quoting and believing God's word is life in the desert. Trusting in God's provision and presence in the desert is the essence of faith. So coming to this discussion question, and maybe you can talk about this with your family this week, or with your small group, or share it with others, but... But which are the scripture verses and the promises of God that you declare and trust when you're being tempted or tested in some way? What are the places that you go that you hold on to when God seems silent, when maybe God seems absent, when you're going through a struggle that you think that nobody else really understands, but you hold on to these promises, what are they? I know one of mine, I've quoted it many times, is talks about how God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. From 2 Timothy 1.7. I've quoted that over and over and over again in times of difficulty and hardship. And others where these truths of God are the things that we hold on to in the times that we need them the most. And there's power in that. And Jesus models that here in this temptation story. So the second temptation is about protection. He's taken to the highest point in the temple to jump off. And uh, enemy says, you know what? You can have the angels swoop in and they can rescue you, protect you. I mean, surely God would pr provide protection in God's house, the temple. It's the very place that the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So Satan knew what he was doing here. He, he takes Scripture himself, but he's now distorting it for his own purposes. And again, Jesus responds, declaring the truths of God's word. And then temptation number three is on the highest mountain. And this is where the third and the ultimate temptation takes place, and it's about worship. 
Because, you see, worship reveals our loyalties. Worship reveals our top priorities. Worship reveals who or what we will serve. And Jesus, again, quotes Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So each one of these temptations in some way reflect the failings of the people of Israel in the desert. Their desert experience showed many times where they didn't trust God, where they did for a while and then they faltered and then they went a different way again. Not trusting God for food and water, not trusting God for their protection, not trusting God in their worship and they worship golden calves and bronze serpents and all kinds of other things. And now it's like Jesus comes in and he overcomes each one of these as a human in the power of the Spirit. And as one commentator, Michael Wilkins, points out, he says, Jesus isn't responding in the powers of God, but he's operating as the Spirit-anointed Messiah in human flesh. So Jesus is the example of perfect humanity lived perfectly in the power of the Spirit. And so while you and I won't do it perfectly or consistently as he did, we have the same spirit and the same power within us as followers of Christ to resist the devil and to follow Jesus in obedience. And so again, this pattern that Jesus lays out is a pattern for us to follow in this kingdom culture. Jesus faces lies and temptation with the truth of Scripture. and We're called to do the same. You know, temptations aren't always about us being uh, or, or getting us to do something that is evil or sinful but sometimes it's just distractions from really obeying the will of God in our lives maybe it's even good things that are used for the wrong purposes how we spend our downtime or our hobbies or the distractions that kind of pull us away from following God in one way or another maybe it's what we read what we watch what we allow to entertain us maybe it's our use of money and its place in our lives. Maybe it's about our sex and our sexuality, our relationships. Maybe it's about our careers or our, even our political convictions. That can be good things that can be distorted and used in ways that God did not intend and become temptations in our lives that actually lead us away from God. And so temptations involve the twisting of kingdom reality, uh, things that need to be confronted with the truth of Scripture. And you see, when we do that, just like Jesus did, then Satan is powerless and he flees. So being tempted is not sin, but succumbing to the temptation when it is there becomes sin, just as James says, as we walk that out and allow it to work in our lives. So temptations in the hands of Satan become a test in the hands of God. God will use them as a test and a strengthening of our character. You know, one way that we might summarize Jesus' example is like this. Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Word to accomplish the will of God. Let me read it again. Resist the devil in the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Word to accomplish the will of God. And so right after Jesus' inauguration, his baptism, he begins his ministry by going to the desert, identifying with God's people. And you know, Israel's dire circumstances that they faced so many times made them question the very presence of God. And when they were complaining to Moses so often, it was like they were saying, is God even here? Do we even know him anymore? And it's a question that I think each one of us often asks in the desert. And one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that God is absent and that we are alone. And when we're the most vulnerable in our desert seasons of life is when the enemy tries to tempt us 
to believe that, that God is no longer present, that we are no longer his children, and that the Lord is no longer on our side, and that we are alone. And you need to know that these are absolutely the lies of the enemy. The Gospel of Matthew, if you look right at the very beginning part of Matthew, it's about Emmanuel, God with us, coming in Jesus, God in human flesh. So Matthew begins this account by saying, God is with you, and I am with you. If you go right to the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, where he gives the Great Commission and he sends out the believers into the world to proclaim this goodness of God and this kingdom of God to the world, one of the last phrases he says is, is, and I am with you always. So right from the very beginning of Matthew to the very end of Matthew is this truth that God is with us. He doesn't ever leave us. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, where he writes it from the perspective of a senior devil speaking to his junior uh, nephew, uh, Wormwood, where you have to think of everything reversed because when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. But the senior devil says to his junior, he says this, hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him, speaking about God, best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, that's God's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. It's such a powerful truth. That there is nothing more remarkable, that, that nothing where God delights in us more than we trust him even when he seems advent, absent, when he removes our hand, his hand in some way so that we can learn to walk in different ways. But he is still there and he is still with us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And so the kingdom culture that we see today that is modeled by Jesus, and that is the invitation for us, is a kingdom culture marked by humility and obedience. It's a kingdom culture marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a kingdom culture marked by the truth and the impact of God's word. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you took on flesh, that you were with us as God Emmanuel, and that when you left us with your Holy Spirit, you said, I am with you always. And Lord, we just uh, confess that so often we stumble when the enemy tempts us in one way or another. We allow ourselves to get distracted. We allow ourselves to get drawn away from you. We allow even good things to remove uh, your place in our lives in one way or another. And God, we just confess that before you today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see more of you, that you would help us to trust you more, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, with power and fire, that you would just pour your Spirit upon us in new ways as the people of God and as the church. And Lord, that you would help us to stand on your truths, to know your word, and to live out of them. So Father, help us to walk in humility and obedience, but with the remarkable power that comes from this kingdom culture that you have inaugurated, that you invite us into. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.